0: of
1: course. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of the Michael Morian podcast. Hopefully this podcast gives you some insight into some topics, helps you learn some new things and overall just helps you improve as an individual person. And today our very first guest is Professor, although he's not actually a professor, uh, but I always refer to him as a professor. um, Thaddeus Martin, Tad, just a little background on Tad. He has been teaching for 29 years at different universities, mostly, you know, at universities, colleges, but he has taught people in age ranges from three to 65. He's done tutoring, substitution, a little bit of special ed teaching, a lot of different stuff, and he, Went to southern connecticut state university where he majored in english and he stayed at southern connecticut state university where he got his master's degree in english teaching so first things first i am curious um why why did you major in english what was the uh the the reasoning behind that it's what
0: i liked i uh, you know i went off to college uh did my freshman year took my basic requirements. Um, got into my sophomore year and they started putting pressure on me to get a major. And, uh, you know, I knew that I had done well in my English classes and I enjoyed them. I liked reading and discussing what I read. And I was never a huge fan of history. Um, I mean, I was interested in history, but reading, uh, long historical documents was not my thing. So English seemed like the way to go. And, you know, my English professors... You know thought that i would do well with it and they said yeah you should major in english and i said okay well i guess that's what
1: i'm doing gotcha uh and at your university back then like were there a lot of other english majors or were you kind of like one of this lone wolves majoring in english
0: no there were a lot
1: um it there was
0: a very different at least among my friends um there was a very different approach to university, you know, we we didn't, for the most part, go in uh, thinking about okay, well, what should I major in? What do I want to do with the rest of my life? Um, it was, you know, this is university, this is what you major in, this is what you study, and then you might do something different after that. Um, and I think the difference between your generation and mine is that, um, you know, at full price per semester for me was $764. And in fact, I got a deal because uh, my dad was a professor at the university. And according to the union contract, I could go for $10 a semester. So you know, when you're paying $10 a semester, you're not thinking to yourself, oh my god, I'm going to have these huge uh, student loans. And I better get a job that makes over $65,000. Because if I don't, I'll actually go backwards. so a lot of things affected the decision. But I think for my generation, the biggest thing that affected the decision was the fact that college was a whole lot less expensive. And, and that was true for, as far as I know, every single college out there. Even the expensive ones weren't anything like they are now. Um, it really changed the picture. You know, your generation has to make decisions in a very different way than mine.
1: Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, back then there also was much less debate about whether or not college was worth it um as the price was lower right yeah i mean i, I went for four and a half years and it cost me 90 bucks so i
0: you know <laughs> you, you pay more than that to stay overnight in a hotel so there's really no there's no debate on that one yeah
1: uh, I, I spend about that much when i go grocery shopping so yeah yeah <laughs> so you know
0: I, and again i mean i my situation was different but even at seven hundred and sixty sixty eight dollars i think it was per semester um that and yeah you know money was different then. you know a a brand new car you could get a brand new car for six or seven thousand dollars but still if you look at it you know even even with the conversion and the and the wealth you know the worth of money um it it was a much cheaper thing to
1: do at that time right and yeah i think the money is the main reason why there's like a popular debate you know is college worth it for people that are you know entering college now Um, my mindset has always been you know you and it's unfortunate because most 18 year olds uh maybe 17 year olds still like they don't process at least i believe they don't process you know the monetary like size of going to university at least i didn't um i didn't care like quinnipiac what quinnipiac costed to be honest i was just like this is where i wanted to be it felt like home and then when i got here and started getting getting older and you know started having more conversations about money with my parents, it started to really sit in and like make, you know, I started to realize that, holy cow, this is a ton of money for me to, you know, have this experience. And that's kind of what fueled me to get more involved in college and like get, do more stuff with my time, like take on more opportunities. Um, Just because I realized, you know, it's not a matter of like, is college, worth it. You know, I'm already in college, so I made my own decision, so it's up to me to make college worth it. You know what I mean? Like I, I have to, through my individual decisions, make this experience worth the money that I'm paying.
0: And that Actually, I think, again, you know, for, for where you are in history, for your generation, that is a that, that makes an awful lot of sense as a, as a way to go about it. There was one other thing I wanted to uh, comment on that you mentioned. You talked about your parents And I think, you know, parents play a a role that they didn't necessarily have to play when, you know, I was younger going to college. Um, And I I have a friend who's worked in financial aid uh, at universities. And and he told me at one point, he said, you know, I have this thing I do when students come in, they're looking for financial aid, which is mostly loans. We call it financial aid as though they're getting free money. But he said, most of it's not that at all. And he said, when they come in, I say to them, "Do you know what interest is?" And he said, fully fifty percent of them, either they say, "Yeah, it's something you like," like I have an interest in sports, uh, and that's all they know, <laughs> um, or they don't know, and they, they realize I'm using it in a way they're not familiar with. And he said, I will not let them apply for a loan until I explain to them what interest is and how, if you take out a ten thousand dollar loan that doesn't mean you pay back $10,000. That's not how it works.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, you pay back more than $10,000 over a prolonged period of time. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think those kinds of things complicate it a great deal as well. But but like you're saying, you know, it's if you have parents who are willing to sit down and, and talk to you about that kind of stuff, um, you're in a better position because there are a lot of kids who are, you know, just sort of, trying to make the best decisions they can. And I don't know of anybody who can make really good long-term financial decisions at the age of 17 or 18. Um, you're just not there yet. Um, so it's, you know, if you've got parents who could sit down and be frank with you, you're several steps ahead, I think.
1: Yes, hundred percent. And I think that's, and I, I do want to talk about kind of like high school and just education system, but I think that's where the education system is kind of, Done a pretty bad job as far as financial literacy goes and educating students on, you know, what is money, why why do we have it, and you know how to be smart with it, especially because in high school I was required to take uh, financial literacy. That was a class I was required to take, albeit I think I took it my sophomore year of high school, so I was like 15 years old, um, and I don't remember much from that class except I learned how to like write a check, and that was pretty much it. There wasn't much more deep stuff into it besides like you know explaining basic terms this is what interest is credit debit but um it was very surface level and that was the only one you had you were required to take beyond that you know i wanted to go to college for physical therapy so a lot of my classes were more anatomy chemistry physics i wasn't you know making time in my schedule to learn about business stuff Um, so me personally i think that's an area where i think high school students especially need to have more education on especially college also like i remember when i was like a junior year of high school there was just like very like small talk about like oh like what schools are you touring like what's going on with your application and stuff and then like out of the blue it's like you know there's four months left and you're like scrambling to figure it out and it's very stressful time like the start of senior year waiting to hear back um and you're kind of like like this mass wave of like pressure to like just go to college and like figure it out and stuff. But there's not like freshman, sophomore year of high school, a lot of like talking about it and like preparing you for like what's to come. That's at least how I feel personally.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, the fact that you had a financial literacy course that you had to take, um, there are an awful lot of schools who don't even have that don't even have that. Um and uh, I, I have a friend who teaches math, he's a he's an adjunct just like me, you know, he teaches a couple of courses a semester. Um, and the course he most likes to teach is the applied mathematics course where he is. Because he talks to students about things like compound interest and stuff like that and, you know, how at a young age can you dig yourself into such an incredible hole that you will likely never get out of it. And, you know, hopefully that helps the students not dig that hole. Um, But I'm always thinking to myself, I like to listen to uh, radio shows. Uh, I I don't know if this constitutes a plug, but I like to listen to Clark Howard, uh, because I think he gives sort of practical financial advice that most people can understand, as opposed to some of the more technical folks who are recommending the individual stocks and stuff like that. But, you know, I know in my 40s, I became very aware that people were saying, hey, look, you know, you've really got to start putting money away in an IRA or something like that as soon as you start working. And I first became aware of that in my forties, and I thought, "Well, it would have been more helpful if I'd heard that when I first started working uh, and I think that's true for a lot of people, you know they sort of become aware much later on they start hearing the message uh a long time after it would have done the most good um, and I do think I don't know i education is funny you know you, you always have the the division between the people who uh Think that education ought to be as practical as possible, and other people who um, are much more sort of theoretically inclined um, and they're sort of the purists, uh, you know, they think about uh, Plato and Socrates and things like that. And um, I think there's room for both, but I do think that there are particular elements where we can say, yeah, practical knowledge of this thing would be very helpful. And if financial, intelligence isn't one of those areas then i don't know what is Uh, you you can ruin your life pretty quickly uh you know without with not knowing enough about how to handle money
1: right and i i feel the country as a whole would be much better off if people understood money better so it's one of those things where it's kind of like why aren't we there's i I feel there's no downsides to learning more about it Um, especially because our education system is very even in college, I was surprised about this was the fact that, you know, I went to school, I was in the physical therapy program, yet here I am taking an English class. Like, I thought that was interesting um, that, you know, I still had to take a fine arts. I had to take a film class. I had to take a certain amount of humanities. um, And it was very like, you know, you need to take an all encompassing range of classes with a focus on health science related courses. And, Nowhere in that was there, as far as, you know, Quinnipiac goes, but high school is the same way. Like, you know, there wasn't any requirements for me to take business classes. There wasn't any requirements for me to take classes that taught me about money, taught me about the economy. There was none of those requirements. Instead, I was being required to read like Irish myths and legends, um, which albeit like, you know, I found was an interesting class, but not there's very little correlation that I could get out of that into, you know, a physical therapy degree besides just reading some stuff and, you know, understanding the uh, Irish myths better.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, I'll, I'll tell you something else. That's, that's kind of interested me. I've, I've ended up doing a lot of weird little things. Um, and one of the things that I do is uh, I do a lot of editing um, for some of the folks over at Columbia teachers college in the math department so I only edit mathematics stuff. Well, I'm an English teacher, so that's kind of funny. Um, thank goodness it's mathematics education because if it were sort of high level calculus, uh, you know, it would be a foreign language to me, but I, but mathematics education I, I can do. Um, but as I've, I've done several books uh, with people over there and uh, I've edited several dissertations and a lot of articles and become really aware of, uh, issues of mathematics curriculum and um, you know the, there are these great big fights as there are in you know every every field what should be included in the curriculum and what shouldn't k through twelve and uh, it's interesting to see what people's reasoning is for you know what we teach them when we teach them and how we teach them um, and there are strong arguments for a more theoretical approach because it sort of teaches people to think in a very logical way. I know when I took geometry, for instance, um, it changed the way I thought it was one of the most important classes I ever took um, and somewhat practical because I did some construction, but not hugely practical. Um, but then the, you know, like you say, the other question that's sort of the practical value of things is is a pretty weighty question too. Um, but it's, I think I noticed it more reading about mathematics than. English, because I'm outside the frame. I'm not a math teacher, and therefore I can kind of see all the things at play. Uh, partially because I'm not invested in it, um, but I'll I'll be interested. I mean, there's certainly a you know there's a there's a much there's a big push these days on practicality in education, um, particularly higher ed because of the cost. But I have a feeling that if it's not already exerting influence on K through 12 education, it's going too soon because we can't have a system in which K through 12 is one thing and higher ed is something completely different. It just, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I'll be interested to see what happens in the next 10 years or so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There definitely needs to be a smooth transition because then you're kind of starting from square one again. And it's like, what was all, what was the point of everything I did in high school? So definitely need to, you know, there needs to be some sort of bridge between the two. Um, for sure it just it was just really surprising to me when I went to college and you know it still kind of had that high school uh, class structure where you know the reason why in high school you take a bunch of different stuff is so you could figure out why you want to go to college and what reasons and you go to college and then it's like the same thing Um, you know I was just concerned with you know my health science classes and whatnot even then with my health science classes I had to take like chemistry and you know that's probably the best example of a class that I don't think really helps me much as a physical therapist. So it's interesting, but um, obviously it was a difficult class. I think in some ways it kind of weeds out some of the students who aren't willing to put in um, the effort that it would take to be successful in future classes. But as far as like pushing me forward in the direction of becoming a physical therapist, I don't know how much, you know, it really did for me. So moving along, I would like to kind of build upon the concept of, you know, we were talking about how the high school, you know, really doesn't do a good job of teaching people about finances, money, and the decisions that involve going to college. Um, and I, I asked you, like, you know, how many people were majored in English when you were an English major? You know, there was a decent amount, right? Yeah, yeah. At least from my my experience. I don't know a single English major at Quinnipiac. I don't know a single one. Um, I know one history major, and he's changed his his major uh, like three or four times at his time at Quinnipiac. So he could be something totally different at this point. But, you know, why do you think that is? Like what happened then to now and why no one seems to be majoring in English and, you know, history and stuff like that? Well, I I
0: think Quinnipiac is kind of a it's a bad example in one way because Quinnipiac has always had this kind of pre-professional school um, approach Um, so I think if you were to go to other universities you would find that there would be more people majoring in philosophy and English and history and things like that than in Quinnipiac so I think the sample in that you know if we're going to use Quinnipiac and extrapolate, I think that's a little bit problematic. However, um, I wouldn't deny that there are fewer people majoring in English, even at Southern where I went. Um, and, you know, I just, I think people are thinking much more practically than they used to be. I, the other thing, the other sense that I get is that um, starting with the millennial generation it became sort of um, common sense knowledge, which doesn't mean it's true, it just means most people think that way. Um, to think that, oh, well, you know, uh, the United States, um, if you were in the 1950s, that was great, you know, because we were on, our star was in the ascendant and all that kind of stuff, but uh, things are gonna be much, much harder uh, and no longer can kids assume they'll make more than their parents made. and you know, that that wealth in general would be decreasing. And so you have to be much more practical and, and sort of smarter in how you um, prepare yourself and then market yourself. Um, and then all this talk about branding and all that kind of thing that came along with the internet. I, I think that kind of thing changes things. Um, I also think the, you know, the money issue changes things that, you know, the pressure with, that comes with student loans and I know, for instance, like I have two sons right now who are going to uh, going to college. One of them's already there. One of them's headed off this fall, uh, and they're going to Southern. And um, they are well. They're not paying. I am paying <laughs> a whole lot more um, than uh, people did when when I was going to college. The state used to pay about seventy five percent, basically of uh, student tuition used to offset that much the state doesn't do that anymore and so the gap between going to a state school and going to a private school is not what it used to be uh, now they're trying to make a uh, community college i don't know how far along we are with this i i should know better than i do but it's the summer so i'm banging nails i'm not uh, i'm not reading the newspaper um but they're talking about making community college free um that may change a few things. I don't know. Um, On the other hand, uh, you know, community college for a long time now has uh, positioned itself as a place where people without a lot of money can get their foot in the door of higher education. And people without a lot of money um, have always needed to be practical. (laughs) The, The kids coming from old money and going to Yale can major in philosophy because money's not an issue. But, you know, if you're coming from uh a family without a lot of extra then uh i think you know i, I think for an awful lot of people in that situation majoring in philosophy or english or something impractical uh, uh whether it's impractical or not it's thought of that way um has never been an option um so so i don't know i mean it's uh <clears throat> it, it's a strange thing um because you know, we can also talk about the idea of extended adolescence, and it seems like in this country, ever since the concept of childhood was invented, um, I don't know if we had that discussion in your class when you were in my class or not. Um, maybe not. Maybe. Um, uh, maybe, maybe not. Can remember. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, yeah. But one of the things I, I like to ask students is, when was love invented? And when was childhood invented? And they say, well, those things have always been around, but they haven't. The concepts that we have of those things haven't been around for a long time. Um, love was uh, was invented. I mean, it, it. You can go to different sources and find different uh, different answers, but thirteenth uh, century is a common answer, and and childhood either the nineteenth or the twentieth century. And it seems like adolescence adolescence at one time was not a thing. You were a child until you could go out and and you know cut wheat and milk cows and then you weren't a child anymore bang done you know (laughs) but now we have this thing called adolescence which is a kind of buffer zone between the two and it seems to get longer and longer and longer um right and that's an interesting i mean if i were a sociologist i could say something interesting about that but i'm not Uh, but i think that also plays into this idea of what college is and how people approach college
1: we actually did talk about that i remember now (laughs) we we okay. <laughs> I remember specifically yeah it, it's rekindling my memory but um I I'm curious what you think of of this because yeah you know the amount of time that we're you know in adolescence the amount of time that we're not like free totally um this like I'll say self reliant adults you know it's definitely longer um, I still rely on my parents for a lot of things even though I fe- I feel like you know, I've never been more free in my life right now. Like I'm living in a different state than my parents are. Um, I'm, you know, just hanging out in Connecticut, they're in Jersey. Um, I'm going out making my own food, you know, working, making money and stuff. Like I feel very free, but I know the financial support of my parents is still very much there for me and also the guidance and whatnot. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, because I, I heard from somewhere, it was another, another, another podcast. But, you know, it was a dad and he was saying that we, we help, we, we almost like baby this generation, like they almost get too much help to the point where like, you know, they, we, we, like we as young adults have so much more potential than we think. And because we're na- like nurtured for so much longer, we don't get to realize that. And eventually we kind of just like stay in this state, you know, where we're not like challenged as much. We're not pushed to You know survive and make money and obviously it's like a harsher crueler reality but you know there wasn't yeah like you said there used to not be a child it used to be seven years old and you were out you know working all day and you know you had to learn really quick like this is what life is and you have you had to you know get by with that but nowadays you know we have there's like so much systems that in place to help us and to you know make sure we follow the right path the right track and whatnot um but i i wonder like how much of it is like almost too much help and then in the other areas there's not enough help you know it's it's interesting because i, I see these statistics of you know there's increasing usage of antidepressants um, anti-anxiety medication for young adults even though this is like the safest generation we've ever lived in this is like it's almost like we're, we're helped and coddled so, so much that um i don't wanna say we're soft but like we almost can't handle the stressors that life is intrinsically going to place on us so i think like that there's like a weird like i don't think there's enough discussion about that and you know how much help is almost too much help and parents like need to let go more than maybe they're comfortable with and also it's hard when everyone around you is like doing things one way and then you know you might want to do something a different way, but if everyone around you is like raising their kids a certain way, I'm sure it's hard to say like, you know, now like this is what's going to work out best because no one really knows. It's a lot of just, you know, trial and error, seeing how things result and then, you know, moving along with that. What do you think about that?
0: Well, I, I think, again, if I were a sociologist, I would have many more interesting things to say about it than I actually do. Um, I I think there's also a socioeconomic uh, difference. You know, right. kids from the suburbs with parents who are comfortable—that's um, the parents can do one type of parenting um, that parents who are a paycheck away from being broke can't do. Um, and uh, you know, it, it kind of makes me wonder, uh, in a way, if the business leaders of tomorrow aren't going to be the kids growing up with parents who are a paycheck away from being broke because those kids sort of learned to, to scramble pretty early. Um, my girlfriend actually grew up in, uh, in Bridgeport um, and uh, her family was a single parent family. And um, she's talked to me an awful lot about sort of, cause I grew up in Eastern Connecticut, which uh, it's not quite New Canaan, but you know, there were a lot of wealthy people there. I mean, my dad was a state employee and I lived there and we were one of the poor families. Well, we weren't, it was just a relative thing. But um, but she's told me an awful lot about how it's very different growing up being poor than it is growing up in a suburb in Connecticut in Fairfield County. So I think, you know, the the idea of the helicopter parent and helicopter parent is probably an outdated term now even, you know, that was a that was a term from quite some time ago but i think it does describe a certain phenomenon pretty well um and you know on the other hand i i think about my sister lives in uh, in bolivia and um, i remember listening to something on the radio a little while ago um, and it was someone saying you know if your parents are old if your children are over a certain age and they're living at home you have failed as a parent and i thought to myself wow Every parent in certain cultures has failed as a parent then because there are many, many cultures where it's an extended family, you know, and and this idea that the kid has to completely individuate and move eight states away and have no more contact with the parents than to see them on Christmas, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a thing in those cultures. So, you know, I, I think there's a pretty big range. And I think the other thing I'm beginning to notice too is that whatever we've done for a long time, we sort of tend to think as a culture, well, that's the way we have to do it. Um, And this idea that things could be done very differently. We're not, we're not too keen on that. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if it's, uh, you know, well, we're Americans. So the way we do it must be the best way because, you know, look at us. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know why, but I do you know, I, I don't look at those cultures and sort of say, oh well, you know, they've they've failed. So I I don't know. I, I really don't know if we're coddling too much or we're not supporting enough. But I do know it's different within different
1: subsections of our own population. Yeah. So I didn't answer your question at all, really. No, but <laughs> and that's fine. You, I wasn't. It was just, what do you think? You know, but um, that was that adds a ton because you know, obviously. If you, it's not just like a, a one-size-fits-all thing like this is how everyone is um and i find it interesting because i read a, a book called the blue zones where like this guy who works for national geographic he goes around the world and finds areas where the people in this certain town or specific region they live significantly longer than other people uh to, usually would compare it to americans um, and like one of the things that was it didn't matter if it was japan Greece, Italy, uh, California, um, Costa Rica, it didn't matter where the blue zone was. One of the things that was always the same was that there was a really, really strong family uh, tie, family connection. You know, the households, it was great-grandparents, grandparents, grandparents, parents, kids, like all under the same roof. And I I find that interesting because they were the ones who were living longer. Um, You know, all these different regions had different diets. They had different know things that they considered hobbies different religious beliefs but you know those that was one of the few things that was the same across the board was extremely close bonds to family so it's interesting like i think i think me personally i have a closer relationship to my parents than my parents did with their parents but then like it's like a weird debate in my mind where you know is this going to help me in the long run or is it going to hurt me like is there a certain and maybe it's not just the fact that you're with your parents for extended periods of time maybe it's like the nature in which you're with them you know what is it that you're doing when you're with them you know what's going on day to day and and whatnot you know because you could live at home but not be home a lot like you know when i'm in jersey i'm out this is more recently but i'm out like door dashing and making money for a portion of the day and then you know i go into the basement and sit on the computer for another like four hours and you know I'm home, and my parents are like right upstairs, but I'm not like directly like interacting with them for the majority of the time, but I just think it's interesting, you know the family structure that seems to be or a main reason why you know areas live longer, at least that's what that book draws well
0: you just said something just now too that reminded me of something that you had mentioned about uh how you think about college um You know, you're trying to make your college experience worth it rather than determine if it is worth it or if it's not worth it. You're going to make it worth it. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And it also I think you can apply it to the idea of having relationship with your parents. I mean, a good, strong relationship with your parents, I think, can offer many things. But if you're 25 years old and you still don't know how to operate a washing machine um, because you're still relying on your mother to do it, then and i think you have control over that i think you can say no mom i need to learn to do my own laundry and obviously we're not just talking about laundry here but you can be with your parents but also say i'm going to make conscious choices to not let myself um be hurt by this experience because i don't uh i don't gain certain skills because i'm too dependent you can be with your parents but choose not to be as dependent on them that seems to be what you're talking about seems to me that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know if a lot of people think about that very consciously. Um, but it it seems to me that it, it probably is something that a person in late adolescence should be more conscious of.
1: Yes, 100%. I think that's definitely um, an issue in, in the thought process. And I, I don't know about people that are in different generations, but at least my generation, we're very keen on like, discovering things like, or things are things are just the way they are. And like, that's like, we like things to be black and white. Whereas I view things as more gray and, you know, you have like love, for instance, people think like you're going to just like come across your soulmate one day. Um, And then, you know, everything will just be a fairy tale story and you, you, you know, you move along in life and everything's works out great. But if you know any of your friends or maybe your own family, or yourself like that's usually not how the dynamic goes like i i view like relationships and love and stuff as something you decide to do and that's not something that you discover like it's a decision you make to spend the rest of your life with someone it's a decision you make to sacrifice your time to make the relationship better it's not like this discovery and then like you just like have this subconscious thing and like everything just lays its lays itself out perfectly in front of you um that's just another way of explaining kind of what you're saying like you know, people need to realize more that you have a decision to make. Like college, it's not something you just discover. It's like an intrinsic thing. Like it's worth it or it's not. It's one of those things where you need to look at your life situation and what you want to do later. And then when you go to college or if you go to college, then you need to figure out how you're going to make it worth it. Like it's an individual spark thing that gets it going. People think it's just like ah, uh, college, you know, it didn't work out for me therefore it's not worth it for everyone type of thing just like a bad mindset that i think a lot of people have
0: We did uh, cinderella in the class you took with me right
1: what was that that kind of cut off at
0: the beginning oh we uh we studied cinderella in the class that you took yes. with me right yep yeah when you were talking about love i couldn't help but think of the cinderella thing you know, this idea that uh, you know, uh, if, you're a, if you're a woman, just wait until your Prince Charming shows up. And if you're a man, well, just, you know, they'll be the one and there's only one. And, you know, go around with a glass slipper and whichever one it fits, that's the one that's kind of intended for you. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that although we still like the story, we sort of recognize it as a kind of idealized thing that we like as a story and not necessarily as a viable life pattern. Right. <laughs> but you you reminded me of that very much, you know, with what you were talking about.
1: Yeah. I think that's why it's a children's story. Like it's written as a children's story, you know, because it's it it um speaks to that kind of, you know, it's a fairy tale. It speaks to that sort of thing that like life is going to just it speaks to the ideal of like what your life would be like, you know, ideally that's how it would happen. There's one person on earth for you. You find them and it's awesome and you guys live happily ever after. Like that's an ideal situation so you know you can build a story around that and that's really appealing to children whose imaginations are you know unfortunately i think their imaginations are you know way better than older people Uh, they're much more creative and stuff so when they hear stories like that like you know you can see like it lights the light their eyes light up and stuff when they when they read those stories it's pretty cool um but yeah i think we need to realize that there's like stories that sound nice and like things that sound nice but then there's kind of the reality of life and like the limitations of humans you know unfortunately there's a lot more that comes into play than just you know your fairy godmother coming down and helping you out and everything um i i'm curious you know and again i know quinnipiac's not the best school to use as an example but i i just find it interesting that there's not more interest i think this is also a flaw. least in high school um, but maybe college also there's just not like an interest in reading and writing um, and then in history I feel like there's just like as far as my friends go I don't know many people I feel like there's less people that read books I like there's less people that write in journals there's less people that want to learn about history and read like there's so many amazing books from the past that people can read but there's such a little interest in, in doing so. I think a lot of it is just like technology and the age we're at and social stuff. And, you know, it's not really cool to spend your, you know, Thursday night inside reading a book. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, at least to me, like, I feel like that's like, if you're able to read write, and you understand history really well, like those seem like superpowers to me almost like, if you can articulate what you can, what you can think and you can articulate it well in a manner in which people can then, you know, read it and understand what you mean and then, like, learn new things, like, it's, like, a really important thing. And I think it's, like, one of the core reasons why, like, civilizations kind of advanced was the ability to write things down, the ability to keep records, you know? But there's, like, less of an interest in that, I feel like.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I agree with you completely. Um, okay. and there, are two, uh, there are two reasons. Um, one, I, I think I'm really kind of going in backwards order here, but um, knowing stuff seems to be less impressive these days uh, than it used to be. Um, like, for instance, um, I go up and I, I spend uh, Friday evenings with my stepdad. Uh, my mom passed away, so I, I go up and spend some time with him once a week, and we watch Jeopardy. And it's very interesting because um, if you watch jeopardy all the ads during jeopardy are for old people things and it you know i'm I'm watching that and i'm saying to myself hi huh, you know like colonial pen life insurance to pay for the funeral and you know all these kinds of things um which are of no interest to people in their 20s and um and you know it's true i mean if you if you look at the uh, demographic data on jeopardy it's older people who watch jeopardy Older people tend to be more impressed with how many facts you have in your brain. Um, because if I were to ask you a tough question right now, you would pull out one of those funny little things about this big and you would push on it and it would tell you the answer or you would talk to Siri or something like that and she would tell you the answer. And um, and so knowing stuff is less impressive because knowledge is much cheaper than it used to be. So. And I say to myself, gosh, I don't know know how valuable it is to know stuff. Maybe it's more important to be able to do stuff with information than it is to know the information at this point, since gathering the information doesn't take as long as it used to. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I think it might be. Um, The other thing that strikes me is that... um, You know, you can talk to an awful lot of English teachers all all over the place and they'll tell you, oh, kids don't read. And, you know, you you get the very predictable rant. Um, I'm a little less likely to rant in that way because I do see students as doing things um, that are similar to reading books. Like they'll watch TED Talks, uh, things like that. Um, And I have to tell you, I mean, I'm fascinated by... uh, sacred books, um, as you know, you know, from your experience in, in my class. And I'm fascinated, particularly by the Bible, because it sort of underpins so much of what we do so much of people's morality, And you know, a lot of people say, Oh, well, you know, the Bible is old fashioned. And, you know, I, uh, I don't believe in it. And I don't base my life on the Bible. But we have these shared values as a culture, and a ton of those come right out of the Bible. You know, right. yeah. so people say, oh, no, I, I don't live my life. And, you know, it, it's not affected by the Bible. Well, that's nonsense. It's it's just total nonsense. And I like to read the Bible and, and sort of try to think about its effect on the culture I live in. But to be honest with you, I hardly ever read it. I go to YouTube and I listen to Alexander Scourby's um, uh, recitation of it. Um, so here I am, you know, the English teacher, and I'm not reading, I'm listening. Um, and part of that is because i got to read I gotta wear reading glasses now that I'm 51 years old and I hate wearing reading glasses because it reminds me that I'm old. Uh, (laughs) But so there's a way in which, you know, I'm reading but I'm not reading, that kind of thing. And and there's a lot that's been written too on the idea that um, print culture was once as new to the world as the internet is now. Um, That there was a time when, you know, people like you and me couldn't afford to buy a book because a book cost a huge amount of money because somebody had to sit there and write it out by hand. And that took a huge amount of time and it had to be done by somebody who was literate and there weren't very many literate people. Um, so I don't think I'm quite, I'm not like a lot of English teachers, you know, who would say that if you're not reading it, holding it in a book, it doesn't count. Um, because I do think that, you know, I think watching a good TED talk is, is a kind of reading.
1: Um, yeah so anyway that, that's yeah yeah I mean to prep for this I was kind of flipping through some of the books that we read in your English class um, specifically I was trying I was trying to read Gilgamesh um, and understand it on my own and it was difficult very and, you know it's its an older English it's well it's not an older English but the language obviously was different and then you know, they're translating a different language into English there's complete sentences that are missing and then words just don't really resonate with, you know, my, my the way I speak English. Um, and then eventually I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna watch a YouTube video that that goes over the story. And I got, I understood everything about the story within like 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, albeit I think I enjoyed the video more just because I could actually understand what was going on. Um, you know, so like, it's one of those things where, yeah, I, I think I agree. It's just, sometimes it's just a lot easier to just, especially the ancient stories, you know, that they're, they're, they're hard to understand. Like they're difficult reads. I remember from the class, like a lot of the class was just like dissecting, like, you know, a small block of text, like, what is this actually saying? Because the words are like, just like kind of thrown there and then you can dissect them and figure out what it's actually saying. Um, But you know, for those stories, it's a lot easier to just watch a video and kind of get the gist
0: yeah it's interesting too because the example you picked out is uh there are two different issues at play there um one is uh, reading Gilgamesh in translation you know the people seem to think well the older the translation um the better it is because it shouldn't be in language that's too easy to understand and that doesn't really make any sense I mean, if it were translated, it couldn't be translated into Elizabethan English because it hadn't been discovered yet, but uh, found under a bunch of sand in Iraq. But, um, But people, I think, would be biased toward that and say, well, the translation in Elizabethan English is the correct translation. Well, it's still a translation. So I don't have any problems with people reading translations that are in modern English. I think in some ways that's better. But the one thing that I would have an issue with is um, a lot of the versions that you'll see, like there are huge sections of that text that are missing because the clay tablet that it was written on disintegrated or you know the sand washed across parts of it, like sandpaper wore it out, those kinds of things. Um, and the one thing I would have an issue with is reading or listening to a translation that filled that stuff in. Because then you're getting somebody's idea of what it probably said, and you don't know that for sure. Um, so, that, I, like, there are a couple of well known examples that I've long since forgotten because it's been too long since I've listened to them, but well known examples of uh, classical music that was half written because the person died in the middle of composing it. And a modern composer will sometimes take that and then make a second a piece of it so that the whole symphony exists now. Um, But I think for that kind of thing, you need to say, hey, look, this part was written by Schubert and this part was written by, uh, you know, Samantha Smith uh, in (laughs) in 2012, you know, you have to make sure that people understand sort of what is being filled in for the sake of enjoyment and what is actually what we can know,
1: that kind of thing. I'm curious if you have any idea like how we can make English and history, and you might disagree that, you know, this is not something that needs to be worked on, but at least like from my experience, like when I am with my friends, like we don't want to, sometimes we do, but you know, people don't want to talk about like history when they're hanging out and like grabbing lunch and stuff. Um, They don't want to, you know, talk about those types of things. Um, Do you think, you know, there's less interest in history today than there was when you were in in college? Or do you think it's about the same?
0: Um, I I would say it it seems to me to be about the same. And certain pieces of history, people seem to get very, very excited about. Um, And I don't mean excited necessarily in a good way. I mean, they care about it profoundly. Um, And I guess an example I would give is with the Black Lives Matter movement. really talking about certain things um lesser known bits of history um like a lot there's been a lot of talk lately about um you know what race you had to be to buy a certain house uh there's a long history of this i know on long island um that if you weren't the right color it didn't matter how much money you had you couldn't buy that house because it was written in Um, you know just like you might not be able to buy a house, you might not be able to buy uh, a house in a certain community right now because you're not over 55, something like that because they want to keep it an elderly community with services for the elderly or something like that. Um, and uh, th- that kind of stuff, you know, people have been saying, did you know, because there are a lot of people who don't know these little bits of history and it's sort of forcing people to think about the fact that, oh, you know, gosh, I guess there have been things going on that i wasn't aware of and that's why the black lives matter movement is there because these things are real and um, i didn't experience them because i'm not the kind of person they were used against um so i do see you know especially with that movement i see a very keen interest in certain parts of history um but i think you know also you know people are seen seem to be fascinated to know where they come from these days too you know oh i had my dna analyzed and I found out that I'm actually Romanian or something like that. And uh, yeah, which seems a little strange to me because I always wonder, you know, if you find out that you're a Hungarian uh, and you didn't know that, what what does that mean for you? Does that mean you feel like you have to eat goulash several times a week? <laughs> I mean, what, it, people seem to sort of think, I, I, it just seems like a strange thing uh, like that. Oh, it changed my life to find out that you know, my people are descended from a certain place. I,
1: okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My whole family did one of those. Um, and the, we, we have a good like history of like where we came from. So the results were very, you know, what we expected, but it was still cool. And it actually helped us connect with some relatives in Spain. So it worked out in that manner, but I wouldn't say like, yeah, like the commercials always make it seem like You get, you know, you spit in this tube and like mail it and then like your life changes forever. It's kind of of weird. Well, Saturday Night Live did a bit on that at one point that I thought was very funny.
0: And it just sort of showed people who found out they were from a certain place. And so then they dedicated their lives to becoming walking stereotypes of what people think of that group of people. And uh, every once in a while, Saturday Night Live gets it right and sort of points out something, some way in which people are really kind of silly and i thought at that moment they pointed out a way in which people can be silly but you know getting reunited with relatives i, I yeah that sounds i could see the value in that yeah
1: yeah yeah 100 um moving along you know i, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about history but also just like my generation you know it, it hasn't really sunk in for me at least like because now I'm 21, so, like, I kind of have a good concept of, like, okay, this is what 20 years feels like. It felt, like, a, like really fast, you know? Like, I remember from, like, zero to 10, like, it took forever for me to turn 10. But, like, every year, you know, it gets faster just because you've been alive longer. Um, so each year feels shorter. But, you know, these 20 years, I feel like have gone by very fast. And I'm sure you would agree, like, time, it flies. Um, and I just find it really crazy that, you know, there's not more people – that really want to like dig into history and like understanding kind of like human nature and, and human condition, because, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that the world was kind of in chaos. I mean, World War II was 80, less than 80 years ago. Um, and like, I didn't, you know, when, when I was growing up, like it's 2000, whatever, six, people are talking about World War II, you know, all the footage is in black and white. It looks like it's ancient to me. And like, you know, but then my grandpa was alive during it. And it's just weird to me to think about that. Like it, it didn't really sink in until like very recently that holy cow, like if you went back and if I went back in time, just like four of my lives, which has felt like a, like a complete like flash, you know, there'd be a hundred, almost a hundred million people getting slaughtered over the course of a couple of years. And like that to me, like, you know that was a huge wake-up call like holy cow like i need to read these i need to read stuff about what happened so you know i understand like this happened these terrible things happened not all that long ago just so you know hopefully myself i can do a better job to hopefully prevent that from happening at least that's m- kind of what my mindset was um what are your thoughts on that because i just think you know like my generation is more concerned with how many likes their instagram posts gets they don't they don't care that you know it, barely, you know, only a couple decades ago, you know, the world was total chaos. I I think part of it,
0: you know, part of valuing history is your connection with it. And, uh, you know, you, when you mentioned World War II, you mentioned something that, that uh, eerily, you know, it's very much part of my life. Um, My father grew up in uh, East London during World War II. And just about every German bomb that was dropped was dropped on East London because it's where all the factories were, and that's how you how you defeat a country is you you know disrupt their ability to produce war material, um, and you know his mother had to get him and his brother uh, out into the shelter at night when they heard the uh, the air raid siren and all that kind of stuff, so World War Two to me seems like it just happened, um, and a lot of the things about World War Two shaped. Uh, my father's existence. And he came over here as a result. Uh, You know, once he was old enough, he came to the United States and that's where he met my mother. And if he hadn't met my mother, you'd be talking to an empty screen right now. So, you know, um, so to me, World War II seems very, very recent and very immediate. I don't know anybody who was killed in Vietnam. So Vietnam feels like it was 800 years ago to me. I, I just it it seems totally remote. In fact, I was born in '69, and Vietnam was going on, and yet it seems totally remote. So it shouldn't be the case. You know, I'm an American, and Vietnam is such a part of our experience, and I was alive during it, and yet there wasn't the direct, you know, cause and effect kind of stuff going on. Um, The other thing that I think makes a difference when you talk about history is when you get old enough where things in your life have become history. Um, And I don't think that happens formally, but I do think there's this time at which we begin to look at things not as sort of current or recent current events, but as history. Um, And so for instance, uh, the explosion of the space shuttle when I was in high school, that's seen as a historical event. Um, I remember at that time thinking it was funny that people would say, "Oh, I remember where I was when John F. Kennedy was shot," and I thought to myself, "Well, that's a thing in a book. That's not a thing that people live through." You know, this sort of book history versus lived history thing. So, and you know, now I'm 51, so now I've seen stuff. Um, you know, and now you know my students weren't alive during 9/11. Um, One of my best friends from elementary school was on one of those planes with his wife and his two-year-old daughter, who was the youngest person to die in that attack. And um, But my students, to them, that's a book thing. That's not a a living through thing because they were born after it. So I think those things make a big difference. And I do think that as you begin to get older, you begin to talk about history more just for that reason, Uh, maybe other reasons too, but at least for that one. Um, And it's, in a way, I know this might be a little bit of a tangent, but in a way, it's, um, you know, people say, oh, well, religion is in trouble because young people don't go to church. Um, And that means that, you know, in 30 years, there won't be any churches, because all the people who are going will be dead. But I think there are reasons that people who didn't go to church when they were young start going to church when they get older. Uh, The Primary one being that they're scared. You know, you know, oh no, I'm gonna be gone forever, you know. Uh, church is, you know, church, synagogue, whatever it is, what, whatever your bag is, uh, is a pretty good way to deal with that. So I think there's a reason that a lot of the young people who don't go to church may very well end up in church when they're older, and that's kind of the way, you know, you've always had to drag kids to church. Very few kids have been, yay, church, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I think these are things that happen naturally, and kind of always have. I think there have always been people who are over 50 who talk about history a lot more than people who are in their 20s, because people in their 20s are living their lives and doing exciting things. And people in their 50s are not doing exciting things. You know, I, I watch a prime video at night, and that's an exciting night for me. It wouldn't have been when I was in my 20s.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I remember where I was when the, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing happened That Chili's eating some food with the parents, um, Sandy hook. I was at a friend's house, like, you know, and I guess it's interesting cause you know, those are terrible things that are happening while I'm alive. And then, you know, I lived through those. And then like, I'm wondering like, why are not enough people or why, not, not, why are not enough, but you know, why aren't people my age talking about, you know, how crazy it is that, you know, World War Two was going on, but there's crazy stuff happening. It seems like every month at this point, you know, whether it's like, you know, this pandemic or really anything. So there's always some stuff going on. There's always some sort of, uh, I mean, I'll word it as good and evil going on. You know, there's always some sort of brawl happening. Obviously, the usually the evil side views themselves as the good side and then the good side views themselves as the good side, but, you know, the other side and vice versa, right? Um, so it's interesting, but I'd like to talk about the class that i took that you taught a little bit um if you don't mind you if you want to give a quick rundown just like what was that class what was like, the premise of it
0: well actually it's a little tricky because they've been um, doing some things with regard to the curriculum lately so uh, i've had to change that class quite a bit and i'm going to try and remember the iteration that you got uh because it changed quite a bit over the years um, Uh, As as I recall, in your class, we did uh, Cinderella and Cinderella stories from around the world, but different times as well, Um, and one of the big points of that was that everybody thinks that they know the Cinderella, but really the Cinderella to them is the Cinderella that they know best, and that's the real one, Uh, (laughs) even though it's not the oldest one. so you know we sort of try to break down what it means for you know for a version of a story to be real. Does it have to be the first one? And um, and in fact, uh, probably with most of these stories there are no first ones because they just change over time. So you have to say, well, what makes a Cinderella story a Cinderella? Does there have to be a shoe? Uh, you know, does there have to be a wicked stepmother? You know, these kinds of things. And I think we asked all those questions in your class. Yep. Uh, And it's fun to look at things from other cultures because then you get to realize two things. You get to realize that other cultures have similar stuff to us, but you also get to realize with the wide differentiation in the stories that there are more ways to do things than we do. And uh, people have different values and beliefs than we do. Um, And I always would say to students that, look, we started with Cinderella because if we wanna talk about myth uh, and we wanna talk about religion, Fairy tale was kind of the shallow end of the pool for that. Um, You can watch and see different stories and what people draw from them and values at play and those kinds of things, but there's much less at stake. Um, And I I always would have students who would see that, you know, I was requiring them to buy a copy of the Quran and uh, get a Bible and they would go, oh, you know, what's this all about? Um, I had one student once tell me that her mother refused to let her buy the copy of the Quran because she, her mother thought that the money would go to, um, uh, ISIS. Um, and it was published by Oxford University Press. And, <laughs> and I told her, I said, look, you know, and I, I didn't even say anything to her about it because, you know, she was, she was trying to honor her mother, you know, and, uh, what her mother wanted. And I said, well, you know, what should we do? And she said, can I look at it online instead? My mother said that would be okay. I said, sure, that's fine. Um, and, uh, so anyway, um, so anyway, we started at the shallow end of the pool with with uh, Cinderella, and then we got into mythology and religion. And I didn't feel like having any arguments or causing any um, sort of news stories to go viral about this crazy guy at Quinnipiac. So I didn't draw a distinction between myth and religion. You know, I said, look, these are stories people believe in. Um, I, I refuse to discuss whether they're right or not, and which God is the right one. Uh, we're not gonna go there, we're not gonna do that. <laughs> we're just gonna look at these stories as important stories for groups of people that shape the way people believe, act, and kind of conceive of the world. And, and we did quite a bit of that, you know. and, and probably the oldest one we did was Gilgamesh. Um, and, but we probably also did, um, oh my goodness, Wow, this is what it is to be 51 years old. Sometimes you want to think of a term and it doesn't come to your mind. Um, the uh, the one with Marduk and Tiamat uh, yep. and the creation of the world. That's also from the same area, which is basically Mesopotamia. Um, we, uh, we also read uh, big chunks of the Quran. Um, we read the Hebrew Bible. We read the New Testament. We read some of Ovid because that gave us a window into uh, Greek and Roman mythology, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff, I think. I think we read also some pretty scholarly articles on, uh, on that stuff as well, uh, giving us an idea of how, you know, scholars approach, uh, that kind of study. Um, and as I recall, the year you were in, um, we also did a research paper at the end where we looked at a film as, um, and, and you had to pick a film that uh, you felt was trying to sort of construct a mythology in some way. And um, and a lot of movies do that. I mean, James Bond movies are, are doing that all the time. Tolkien-based stuff does that. Um, a lot of students were interested in superhero movies. I had students who did uh, Django Unchained and talked about, okay, what, what in this is mythic? Uh, you know, what values does it display and what kind of mythical storylines. Can I see going on in here? Um, And I guess that goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is the idea of the practical versus the theoretical, Um, you know, a lot of what we talked about in the class was theoretical, you know, you don't have a lot of worshipers of Marduk or Tiamat anymore. Um, But, you know, we ended up by looking at this sort of creation of a mythology using media in our culture. And I think a lot of people would see that as much more uh, practical uh, than looking at several thousand year old creation stories from a culture that is now pretty well gone. Um, so, I mean, I, I, guess that's it. I guess that that yeah.
1: was what we did. Is that, yes. Does that seem to summarize it pretty well to you? Uh, oh yeah. Very well. Very well. I, and I, I wrote my, my final research paper on Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. But um you know, the interesting thing about your class and like you, you kind of touched on this was like, I really, well, first, first things first, I, growing up, I hated English class. I hated English. I never enjoyed it. I never thought I had a good professor or a teacher. Um, I, I didn't like it. And in high school, it was like, you know, they'd give you like the vocab book and they'd say like, you know, memorize these 20 words and then you'd have to write it down. And then like they'd, at the end of the, you know, you would do like four of those and then they'd give you like a big one with a hundred words and you had to know all of them. It was like stuff like that. And I was like. Really, like this is, I just didn't like it. I didn't view it as something enjoyable. Like, I more enjoyed just like having discussions about books. And I didn't like it when English didn't do anything else besides that. Like, I liked it when we read something and we just talked about it, which there was a, a fair bit of that. But generally, like, I did not like any English classes. And then when I had your English class, that, that totally changed. And, you know, like, I'm a tour guide at, at Quinnipiac. I give tours and stuff, as you know. And, you know, students ask me like, "What what's been your favorite class that you've taken?" And I, I say it's yours, and yeah, yeah, and it's it's, and it's because I guess the class and the way you went about teaching it, it made me not only like enjoy a, a class that I had previously totally hated, but it also made me, you know, appreciate and understand other people's beliefs and cultures without challenging my own values at the same time um it was very well structured in that manner where me being catholic and christian you know i could go into that class and come out honestly more catholic and christian in my in my opinion because i understood other people i could relate to them better therefore i could you know be a better person and, and at the same time like there's some sort of common ground where i can i can relate to more people. And I do that as a, a Christian Catholic thing, being able to, despite, it doesn't matter, you know, you're rich, poor, what you look like, what color you are, um, what you believe in, you know, we can all kind of get along. That's at least what I view it as. So, you know, your class was, was great in that way. And then on top of that, you know, I, I, I describe as a pretty unique professor teacher and the, and the manner in which you teach because you would always walk in with your Hawaiian shirt, you know, you play music at the start of class. Yeah, um, you had a very unique teaching style, um, and I'm I'm curious, you know, where that stemmed from. Because most prof- most professors, most teachers, it's kind of like very, you know, I don't want to say authoritative, but it's very like kind of is like that. You know, you're there, they write things on the board, they talk to you, you take notes, you walk out of the class. Whereas yours was much more of discussion based. You know, asking questions and you had this like casual approach, but yet I still feel like I learned, you know, immense stuff. So, you know, where did that kind of come from, that teaching style?
0: Uh, Probably came from the people I enjoyed learning from uh, in college. Um, Of course, to contradict myself, I learned really well in lectures in college. So. Uh, but but I know that I also enjoyed classes in which there was a lot of back and forth, and particularly when I went on to get a master's degree. You know, you really, um, you know, there's there's less lecturing at you when you're a master master student. Um, but I uh, I just like to engage students. You know, if um, if my students aren't engaged, then I'm not really enjoying the experience very much. And uh, you, you know, if you're doing it on an adjunct basis. Um, you're not you're not getting rich doing it, so you better have some other reasons for doing it. Uh, <laughs> and um, it, it's fun for me. I guess I've always enjoyed violating social norms. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, we were doing a, a unit on camp in uh, my English uh, 101 class, and um, we began by reading Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp. And you know, talking about what students had seen that they would say was campy or kitschy. What's the difference between camp and kitsch? All this kind of stuff. And um, and I thought I, I want to do something here. I want I want to go big or go home. And uh, I I hired the um, the uh, head of the New Haven Pride Center, who is a um, he has a drag act, and uh, and so. Uh, I had Kiki into my class, uh, <laughs> and, and I had a drag act going on in my class, and uh, it was lots of fun, and some of the students were a little, you know, <laughs> what's this all about, and we walked through the hall at Tater Hall to get to my class, and uh, there were a lot of different things said as we walked through the hallway, um, n- not a lot of drag queens walking around on the Quinnipiac campus, uh, just as a general thing. Um, so, but, you know, I thought to myself, this is something we can talk about quite a bit. We can get a lot out of this, but also it's something that the students aren't expecting. And I I think when you hit students with something they're not expecting, you can kind of open a door, um, that wouldn't be open if you tried to approach it from a more conventional standpoint. Um, yeah, but part of it's just because I have fun doing it and I sort of feel like. I better have fun doing this job or I'm not going to want to do it anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In in that class, you know, I, I was aware that the Quran and the Bible, you know, the Quran, I knew the Quran stemmed from the Bible. Um, but I wasn't really aware. And it's also interesting because I grew up, you know, I was always going to church growing up. Um, I was very religious. I still am, but I think in a different manner, but, you know, I had never actually like really read the Bible that much. Um, despite considering myself to be a Catholic, you know, I hadn't really dived into it that much. Like, you know, I obviously was familiar with the story about Adam and Eve. I knew Noah's Ark, you know, those are things that were commonly said when I was, you know, going to like the CCD for my church and everything. But um, I found it really interesting when I started like actually reading the books and the texts, you know, obviously As far as especially like the the book of genesis and the beginning of the Quran with the creation stories and and the flood and everything you know, it's crazy how similar they are and Beyond that like there's so many other books that That have like a story of the flood and there's always the creation How do we get here? then there's like always this disastrous flood um, and there's destruction and, and whatnot, like there, that seems to be like this common thing across each. Um, and you know, a lot of the values that I think the, the Quran, the Torah Bible, like they all teach very similar values and very similar ways to go about your life. But obviously when you look at it from an external view of the execution of it, you know, there's people think of Islam and Christianity as very different, you know, almost like polar opposites. And I, I can understand that, you know, whether it's the way one faith dresses and the way another one goes about something, you know, but as far as the root texts go, very similar. And it's interesting to me why there's like, there's so much, I feel like unnecessary tension between different faiths and whatnot. When, you know, you can track it back like Quran, Bible, Old Testament. And then before that, you know, there's Zoroastrian stuff going on that seems to have roots in a lot of this stuff. So it's interesting to me why there's so much like, there's like all this modern day, like, uh, I guess kind of tension with, with groups and stuff, whereas like the texts and everything seem to all be rooted in some commonality.
0: Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the idea that uh, sort of the closer we are to one another, uh, the more able we are to start fights over things that are kind of small scale. Um, there, There's a, who was it? I think Emo Phillips was this comedian, um, a very, very quirky kind of, well, I won't say quirky guy. He had a quirky persona. I don't know what he was like as an individual. But... Um, He does this bit, um, that I like to play a little bit of stand up. Um, and he talks about going to the golden gate bridge and he sees somebody who's about to jump. And so he has this long conversation with this person and he says, um, you know, do you think that God wants you to end your life? And and do you believe in God? And the guy's like, oh yeah, I believe in God. I'm a Baptist. He says, oh, I'm a Baptist. And he goes, he says, well, what kind of Baptist? Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he goes through all these sort of divisions. And it turns out the guy is identical to him, and he says. And then, and then I asked him, "Oh, are you, uh, you know, uh, Northern Baptist? This, that, the other thing? Uh, Council of uh, 1850 or Council of 1871?" And he said, "Council of 1871." So I pushed him off the bridge and said, "Die, heretic!" <laughs> and and I love that bit because it kind of shows how, you know, especially. When you get to politics and religion uh people are sort of looking for a reason to to say i'm not like that person and that person is wrong rather than saying gosh i i remember um i remember hearing uh justice ginsburg talking for instance about the supreme court and she said everybody wants to say oh they're conservative justices and then they're liberal justices and she said we all talk together and she said you take the most conservative justice on the court and I have voted along with him more than I voted on the other side. And so she's sort of, in that interview, was pointing to the fact that people just love to differentiate to kind of start trouble. And, <laughs> and I, I think it's true. You know, it's um, a lot of times we can ignore the ways in which we're similar, which are, you know, there are huge numbers of them. And then there's one difference. And, you know, we fight over that and we're, like a, a couple of kids you know, with a, with a set of blocks or something like that. That's always kind of disappointed me. Yeah. You know, Campbell, who we watched uh, in his interview, he says, look, it's, he calls it getting caught up in the metaphor. And, uh, he says that, uh, you know, if, if we sort of look to the metaphor as a vehicle for understanding rather than something we can look at and sort of spawn very rigid dogma to create an us and them, then we do a little bit better spiritually. Um, and I've kind of always felt that to be the case. And I, you know, people who are very religious uh, probably wouldn't agree with me, but that's okay with lots of people yeah. who don't agree with me.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, are you familiar at all with, with Jordan Peterson?
0: Uh, um, why is that name sounding familiar?
1: He's like a, he's a clinical psychologist. He's been on like a lot of news stations. He does his own podcast. He has books. He's like, he's like famous for saying to clean your room before you like criticize the world and stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I was, I was going to bring up, you know, in his book, uh, 12 rules for life. He talks about how people like, you know, there's a constant, um, it's like he, he uses the, the yin and yang symbol to describe it, but there's chaos, there's order. And then at any one time they could flip flop and like the order could turn into total chaos and the chaos could turn into order. And people like to have orderly. Like they like things to be neat and orderly. And he uses the word predictable. Like when things are predictable, you feel safe, you feel comfortable. And he talks about how that's where a lot of the, the issues that, that stem between different beliefs come from is people don't like it when other people are, they're, they're not as predictable. Because when someone thinks the same way as you, they become a, a, a mirror image of you. Like they're a copy of you therefore everything you know i'm thinking i know they agree with they they view the things the same way so like we have a clear established thing like this is this is the way things are this is the way things have been and this is the way things are going to go so like we have you know a past a future and we we both agree on it and that's how things are going to be it's predictable but then you have someone come in and say oh no 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 you know you th- things are, would be better if they were like this or you know the past actually wasn't like that this is what actually happened you know now the, the reality I've crafted in my head is no longer a predictable thing. It's more chaotic. There's more variables to it. There's more randomness to it. And we don't, we don't like that. We, we, we like things to be predictable. And he thinks that's, that's what he kind of talks about is like a lot of wars and stuff that results from just different ideologies. It's not because necessarily like I hate you and you hate me. It's more so I want to fight to make sure that, what I view is as predictable stays predictable. And like the way that we think together, like they're fighting more so to keep these same idea alive that they all agree on. The other side is fighting to keep their same idea that they all agree on and not lose that, that sense of comfort, that sense of order. He talks about that. And I think that is like a different way of looking at it, but also like a really cool kind of concept. Yeah.
0: One of the definitions of myth that we looked at in the class that uh, you were in was from Michael Shermer, who is a, a sort of very popular skeptic. And he his definition of myth relied on a term that has a lot to do with what you were just talking about. Um, and the term that he used was cognitive dissonance. We want to avoid cognitive dissonance, and
1: myths help us do that. Um, you just yeah. made me think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, For sure and i i find the bible and you know a lot of the religious texts really interesting because you know like in society we have you know laws there's rules but they're kind of like in these really like boring document forms right where it's just like you know if you do this it's first degree murder here's what the sentences are and like you run down the list and it's all like hundreds of pages of stuff legal jargon and whatnot but you know the the religious texts kind of do the same thing, but they put it into storytelling mode or into this kind of form of, yeah, it's storytelling, but in the manner in that it also delivers, like, how you should live your life and, like, what's the best way to go about your existence and stuff. So I've always found that to be really interesting because, like, the Bible at the end of the day, you know, based off what I've read in it, it seems to be telling stories that, when you decipher them and kind of pick them apart, you know, that's where the, the the lessons of life come from is like, you know, like Cain and Abel, like what happens when, you know, you kill your, your brother, you know, and you get, God punishes you, bad things happen. So, you know, you, you can take from that pretty easily. I probably shouldn't kill anyone because especially someone that is close to me, um, as then my life will not be the best for the, for the rest of it. So I kind of like kind of how, those stories go about it. Um, and I wonder like if there's any way our modern day society could benefit from kind of that same model, you know, or is it like an outdated thing? Cause now everything's just like lists of rules, you know, in a document.
0: Well, I mean, it's interesting because you're talking about two different, um, two different functions of a text. Um, the, the way laws are written uh, makes them much more, uh, Useful um, for administering justice, and I mean it's fascinating to me. I'm I'm not Jewish, but I'm fascinated by uh, Jewish history, Jewish culture, and you know this idea that you have, you know, in, in Orthodox communities, um, the rabbi is is the judge, basically. You know, people go and they say, "Hey, look, we have this problem. This is the way it's happened," and and he goes to uh, one of a couple of sources and says, well, here's something relevant, but he has to interpret it. You know, and and if you're trying to, I mean, suppose you're Judge Mike, uh, you know, and and you're in your courtroom and there's a brother who's murdered another brother and you're trying to decide what the appropriate punishment should be, it's much easier to do it if you're reading a law that says, you know, it, it can be this number of years to this number of years, and this term fits if the following, if it's premeditated, if it's, you know, this kind of thing. It's a lot easier than taking it from a story because the story isn't prescriptive in that way. Um, but you're right that the story is a lot more compelling. Uh, it's a lot more entertaining and it's, you know, you, you're gonna get a lot more people reading it. Um, so, I mean, it, it would seem to me that you know, a lot of children's books um, fulfill that kind of function in terms of, because you have to know the law to obey it. And, you know, that's kind of one of the functions of parents and schools is to tell kids, well, you know, in our culture, this is acceptable, this is not acceptable. Um, and some of those things are pretty true for most cultures, not too many cultures that say, you know, should go around and kill people if they irritate you, uh, you know, things like that. But some of the finer points um, seem more rooted in history and seem a little less sort of universally moral, I guess you would say. So I do think you know, that a lot of the movies that kids watch, a lot of the books that they have read to them or that they read themselves, one of the functions of them is to take this sort of legal stuff that nobody really wants to read just for fun um, and put it into a format where the person can understand, oh, okay, uh, that's frowned upon for some reason. Um, And it's fascinating to me. I was just talking to somebody last night about how uh, we talk to children about sexual behavior you know, and what's acceptable in sexual behavior and what's not. And, and the key there is always, when do you tell them? Um, but that's, you know, we we do a lot of that stuff through either telling them directly or through stories and things like that because they listen better.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's I think true. it's still going on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm always, you know, when I read, especially like the story of Adam and Eve, you know, I'm always like, curious like why why did why did they decide to do this and we talked about this in the class a little bit like you know why did adam you know react this way and then like why why was it why did the devil why did the snake in the garden you know tempt eve and not adam like those types of questions like those are the things that i find super interesting i think those are the questions that explain at least back then how they viewed like um i guess like the the nature of man and woman and, and things like that, just cause it's, I find it interesting. Like, you know, I feel like everything written there is written for a reason. Like they must've, there must've been a reason why, you know, the, the snake went to Eve and not Adam. And like, those are questions that I think are awesome and fun to discuss. Um, you know,
0: yeah, well, I, uh, you know, I've, I've taught a couple of classes, um, for Jewish organizations, uh, I've taught for the Jewish, um, uh, Federation of uh, Greater New Haven and I remember we were we were going over the story of Adam and Eve at one point no we were going over Christianity and some of the fundamental beliefs and it's interesting because I'm the only non-Jew in the class when I'm you know teaching for the Jewish Federation and one of the kids said to me is it true that Christians believe that the snake was the devil and I said yes and I didn't even know that Jewish people don't believe that so there's a fundamental difference in the understanding of the story. Um, but you you also, you mentioned something there that, that, I mean, there are a thousand reasons why it's interesting. Uh, but one of them is that you said uh, something like at the time. Um, and that sort of begs the question too, are these documents that were written at a certain time and true for some people of that time or are these documents true for all time? And that's one of the big, debates. You know, I mean, even if you look it's it's nice to talk about Judaism because the, the groups in Judaism are much better delineated in some ways than in Christianity. We have so many but you know if you talk about the Orthodox in Judaism, you know, the these are things that are true and therefore true for all time. But for Reconstructionism, uh, which is another movement in Judaism, that they don't quite believe the same thing. Um and that's you know there are people who take the bible very literally and then there are people who say well this is a historical document and things change and and uh boy that leads to a lot of arguments too
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i'm i'm nothing more i believe i think the the stories the reason why they're still read and, and talked about is because there's some sort of eternal life messages like that that explain human nature within the stories and if there wasn't then you know we would have moved on by now, you know what I mean? So that's why I think, you know, and I'm mostly familiar with the Bible, but I think a lot of the lessons that come from it and a lot of the way the stories are formatted just explain human nature. And that's not going to change just because, you know, we have technology and cities and stuff. A lot of the human nature, you know, we're still human. Just different stuff around us that, that gets our attention and whatnot. Um, and I, that's why I like a lot of the Disney movies. I feel like the Disney movies... They like tell an entertaining story but like underneath it there's some sort of deeper meaning or message um I, I can i can go over one real quick it's it's sleeping beauty and i always find this interesting whenever i say this to people like especially people my age and i i didn't think of this this is like something i i, I saw online but you know sleeping beauty obviously it's entertaining you know the princess she's stuck in eternal sleep unless this prince slays the evil queen dragon thing and then, you know, she he kisses her and she wakes up, right? That's kind of like the premise of the story. It's entertaining. It's cute. It's a fairy tale. Oh, the the, the guy, you know, the, the knight in shining armor comes and saves the princess. But um, if you look at it like a deeper level, it's really a story about how to um, find a, a and it's more from the, the male perspective, finding a long-term female partner and you know, in order to in order for the prince to finally awaken the princess and to have her, he needs to first overcome the evil queen, which is like the 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 imperfections of the feminine, right? Like there's the princess who's the perfections of the feminine, you know, she's crafted in this way where she's like perfect, and then there's the evil queen who obviously is female in the in the story and in the movie, and she obviously embodies a lot of evil traits. And so the prince has to overcome the evil side in order to be able to live with the perfect side, the, the ideal, the good side. And so, like, that story is, 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 you know, on the deeper level talking about that. And then, you know, so as men, as me, I, the way I do that is, you know, I'm never going to find someone, and it could go v- vice versa, but you're never going to find a partner who's perfect and is entirely good. They're going to have imperfections, they're going to have things. You have to battle with and that you have to overcome if you're going to access the good in them and bring that out so that's that's how i view that story and like it's kind of like a level deeper you know
0: yeah no it's it's interesting too though when you when you think about this idea you know disney uh is just so huge that there's also there's a dark side to what you just talked about too i'm not talking about specifically with disney but this idea that you can have a text that seems to be about one thing, um, and it seems to be about the story you know, of these couple of people or few people. Um, and it's okay, because it's just them. But then there's this sort of statement of values, the ways things should be that's underneath. Um, and on the darker side of that, you know, it's quite possible for us to run into stories that get widely circulated, have kind of a darker subtext to them Um, and I have a a friend who teaches a class um, for the Jewish Federation. Um, One of the things he looks at is uh, depictions of Jews and one of the things he looks at specifically is um, stuff put out by the Nazi party Um, and and very mythical and very story-like but the message of the story is that you know Jews are like rats and they're trying to take over the world and um, you know, and, and we have to make sure that we keep the population down or, you know, we'll all die of plague or something like that. So, so it's, it's interesting, you know, when we use stories to, as expressions of values, <clears throat> um, you know, the values can be values that we think of as yielding good results, uh, but it can go the other way too. Um, yeah. you know, or just like Cinderella a lot of people read Cinderella and they say oh good so you're having a bunch of young girls read stories about how women should be passive and wait for the man to you know oh, that's a good idea I like that message no uh, <laughs> so yeah right
1: all right I have one last question for you and that is just I'm curious what have been some of the most interesting essays or or moments that you've had as a a teacher, you know, is there any, has there been any essays that have just like kind of had a lasting impact on you that students have written? Um, You know, if you could go in depth as to why that'd be cool. Um,
0: I I have had
1: students write things um,
0: that have been very personal at times. um, And it's allowed me to sort of understand their experience. Um, Sometimes, those kinds of things that students write also help me to understand, um, what young people are like, and I'm not a young person anymore. So that's really helpful for me to know. Um, I I need to try to keep understanding what the new batch of 17, 18 year olds are, you know, what these creatures are, what makes them, you know, what they value and those kinds of things. Uh, because at one point, um, I understood it. I was in a position to understand it much better than I am now. You know, being 51 years old. I have I have two kids, 18 and 20 years old. That helps a lot. Um, but I have to keep listening. Uh, and so so I value those kinds of things. Um, you know, it's I've read so many student papers that, you know, oh actually, no, I, I will tell you, there's one student who wrote something to me at one time, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, I was teaching high school, and this young man, uh, I, I let the students write whatever they wanted uh, as an essay, and, and he wrote a personal essay, and he talked about um, being black in a school um, that tracked very heavily, and he was the only student of color in the class that he was in, and he talked about how he spoke to his mother about it, and his mother said, you know, you're doing what you need to do you're in the advanced class and this is the situation and you can be in the advanced class or not um but if you are you're preparing yourself better uh and the school at that time unfortunately that meant he was with people unlike him uh that was the fact of it and so he um he went through that experience and then years later I saw him again uh, when I was teaching college and but by that time I noticed he was always off on his own and um, the essay ended with uh, you know I'm going to do this because I think it'll lead to a better life later on Um, but then the last time I heard about him uh, he had killed himself and I just keep thinking about that that we had something set up at that school where for students of color to get ahead, to be in the upper level classes, they had to be in the white classes. Uh, There's been a lot of change uh, in Connecticut public schools since then, but this kid had to make that choice and it alienated him terribly um, to the point where, I mean, I don't know if that's ultimately the reason that he killed himself or not, I I can't know that. Uh, But I just keep thinking about that and I keep thinking about sort of the effects of institutional decisions on Individuals, and what education should be doing, and what it is doing, and it—that's uh, probably the most affecting essay I ever read
1: because of what happened later. It just made me go back and think about him an awful lot. Right. It, it provided a glimpse, kind of, into what might have been going on in his mind, and yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, with that, I. I don't have any other further questions for you. Um Do you have any questions for me?
0: I don't think so. Uh, you know, it's uh just by listening to the questions and what you've said to kind of fill out the questions and explain the rationale behind them. Um again, it's kind of it's helped me understand the perceptions of a student I once had, but also of a young person, which like I say, you know, that's it's an important thing to do if you're trying to teach young people. So this has been useful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I, um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I always get a lot of enjoyment out of talking with, with someone who, you know, has been alive longer than me. Um, they've seen more things. They've been in my shoes in some ways or other ways. Um, and you know, now they're, you know, doing something else or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But, um, I think my generation doesn't talk enough with older generations. And I, I've, been, I've been saying that a lot. I've been generalizing my whole generation a ton, but um, I do think, you know, especially with my own family, like I definitely need to talk more with like, you know, my grandpa and I think other people need to just talk more with people who are alive when the world looked a lot different um, just because it's, it's important insight. You know, history does repeat itself, it seems unfortunately with with the with the bad things um you know i i always thought you know we would i never expected a pandemic to happen like what it's 20 it's 2020 like we should be able to have our our our, you know our shi together enough where like we could not have this happen um at least so you so you'd think but clearly like there was a wake-up call that oh like society i i do think overall like the fact that like the world didn't go up in flames is pretty cool although obviously there was a lot of tension and debate and stuff going on around it but i mean it was definitely a wake-up call that you know society yeah it's it's pretty it's overall it's pretty peaceful things seem like they're pretty good compared to the past hundred years but still a lot of progress that needs to happen yeah yeah and you know don't, don't fault
0: your generation too much because no generation spends too much time speaking to the elderly. You know, there's life is too exciting when you're young. And so I think you'll find if you ask people from all different generations, do you think your generation spent a lot of time talking to the elderly and learning the, you know, the secrets of the past and the wisdom, the answer is going to be no. There are always a few who do, but most are too busy living their lives when they're young. They're too excited about other things to sit down and say, hey, grandpa, tell me some war stories. Um, it's, it's just kind of the nature of young people. I don't think that changes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day. Well, hopefully, who knows? All right. Well, okay. thank you so, so much for taking time out of your day to come and speak with me. Um, again, I really enjoyed it. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. I enjoyed it very much. Good. Happy to hear it. Very happy to hear it. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good thank you. You too. Thank you.